I wasn't going to let you go two weeks in a row without an episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. This is Monster Kid Radio. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I'd like to welcome you to the podcast. Now, last week, we were off. Uh, it was the first time that we've taken a complete week off uh, in a long time, actually. And I'm not 100% happy about it, but sometimes life just gets in the way. And it continues to get in the way like it's getting in the way this week. Now, we've talked a little bit about this in the past. I want to go ahead and just talk about it a little bit more here. I've moved. Brenda and I are divorcing. I am now living in a new place in Vancouver, Washington. I have, as of this Thursday, been in the new place officially for a week. Been sleeping here anyway. Huge thanks to listeners of the show, friends of the show, Jeff Blair and Tom Doffel, as well as Tom's girlfriend, Shanna, for all of their help so far in helping to get me moved here. I swear, I could not do this on my own. I could not move into this place on my own without the help of my many, many friends. And part of the reason why I've been able to pull this off is because you've been understanding with me with the Monster Kid Movie Club and the Monster Kid Astronomy Club, and even with the podcast itself. I've been doing shows that aren't really up to uh, what we've normally done here on the podcast. Even now, you're listening to a show that's being recorded using a subpar mic for this kind of thing. I have got so many boxes and piles of stuff scattered around my new place right now, I couldn't even begin to tell you where my microphones are let alone my webcams. I mean, I know they're here. It's just a matter of finding them. And right now, I I just don't know where they're at. So I'm using this weird gamer headset that I have to record this bit. So here we are. What are we doing this week on the show? Well, once again, I don't have the conversation with Chris Franklin about Spider Baby. I highly recommend you go in and you track down his House of Frankenstein episodes because they're phenomenal. You know, it might help you with that post-Halloween hangover you might have where, you know, you're kind of mourning the loss of October. Go listen to the House of Frankenstein. It'll be like October still is running strong. So go check those out. I'll make sure there's links in the show notes. Huge thanks to Chris for being patient with me regarding getting that episode out as well. Now, I have had people like Chris ask if there's anything that can be done to help with Monster Kid Radio. And it came up in a previous conversation as well, the idea of maybe having guest hosts or that sort of thing. I'm open to that. If anybody is interested in helping out in that way, please drop me a line at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. I'd love to talk to you about it and see what you have in mind, and maybe we can work with you to put together a guest episode or something while I continue to unpack. Because quite frankly, with working the day job and everything else I've got going on right now, on top of the things that I've decided to add to it, like National Novel Writing Month, I'm not sure when things are going to get back to normal around here. I want them to get back to normal soon, sooner rather than later, because I miss y'all. I miss doing the show. I miss doing the stream so the way that I used to. I just miss everything about Monster Kid Radio. And I plan on getting it back. It's just a matter of time and working through everything to make sure uh, I'm in a place to where we can make it happen. The new apartment's pretty awesome. I'm really excited about it. Uh, I'm, I'm really pleased with it. It's a little more money than I was expecting to pay, you know. But after being turned down for eight different apartments, the ninth place seemed like, uh, you know, the place to go. So here I am in this new apartment in Vancouver, 
setting it up to where it's just going to be sweet. I am working on a YouTube video right now that will kind of document the move experience, which reminds me I really need to find my camera so I can go record some stuff now that I'm here. <laughs> Probably ought to work on that a little bit. Uh, anyway, I just bottom line is there's a lot of changes happening, but one thing that hasn't changed is my love for classic monster movies and my love for podcasting. So, to get an episode to you this week, I had to dig into the archives once again to see what I've shared, what I've played on the show, that sort of thing. And you know what occurred to me? We've played a lot of Steve Sullivan's Atomic Tales, which makes its original broadcast on the Mimiverse audiocast once a month. However, we've been given permission to run the Atomic Tales episodes here on the show. It's an old school style radio show, audio drama, basically done in the style of the old school old time radio, which we all love. But it's produced by Christopher Mim, filmmaker extraordinaire, written by Steve Sullivan. And they've given us permission to play it here on the show. So that's what you're going to get this week. Of course, we've got Mark's amazing Beta Capsule review, which I feel bad about sitting on last week as well. But you're going to get that this week. So you're going to get the Ultraman fix that Mark Metzke is known for bringing. I can't wait to share that with you. And then you're going to get eight episodes of Atomic Tales. That's right, eight episodes. We're just going to run them back to back to back to back after the Ultraman Beta Capsule review. So that's what's coming up this week here on the show. And then after the Atomic Tales, well, that'll probably be the end of this week's episode. I'll pop on for a quick uh, recap or, or goodbye or outro or something. At that point, we'll see how it goes. And uh, hopefully this microphone sounds good enough to warrant you sticking around to the very end. So without further ado, the Beta Capsule Review. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. We're taking the challenge underground, so says Captain Muramatsu near the beginning of Ultraman's 29th episode providing both a synopsis and a title. Japan's largest gold mine suddenly runs out of the precious resource, and the cause it's instantly revealed to be Goldon, a monster that moves more quickly below ground than above, and who is, in fact, gold in color. The Science Patrol springs into action. Using their drill vehicle, the captain and Ide rescue a prospector who claims to have discovered Goldon and that the monster is his or at least the gold it's made out of. Their laser beam drives gold onto the surface, where the SSSP defeats the creature. But the drill vehicle malfunctions, running into another Goldon monster underground. With their oxygen supply running low, they fire their last missile at the second Goldon, which causes the monster to flee above ground where Ultraman is waiting to engage in battle. But is there enough time to defeat Goldon and Rescue the Drill Vehicle. 
Challenge to the Underground moves at an extremely brisk pace. Monster Goldown appears within the first 20 seconds, and the plot never looks back, with some sort of action taking place right up to the final few shots. E-Day's invention, the drill vehicle Velucidar, is a great addition to the Science Patrol's mecha fleet, and is featured in the subterranean scenes that Tsuburaya Productions does so well. But perhaps the highlight is the appearance of Senkichi Omura as the Goldon-loving prospector. Omura is one of the classic, oh, it's that guy, supporting players of Japanese cinema. He chased his hat into a crater in Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, was the reluctant interpreter in King Kong vs. Godzilla, and shows up in many a Kurosawa film, including Seven Samurai and Yojimbo. But for our purposes, Omura holds another distinction. He's one of the first people to be seen in the first episode of Ultra Q, where he, in another underground role, comes face to face with Kaiju Gomez and reacts with the panicked histrionics that were his bread and butter. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present Atomic Tales Stories of science, mystery, and excitement This episode features the latest adventure in our fantastic original series Strange Invaders Tonight's tale takes place near the beginning of this uncanny invasion in a story we call A Scientific Problem Join us now as we present another in a continuing series of Atomic Tales. Cube square law be damned. I was staring down the mandibles of a 15-foot-long ant and in no mood to argue about science. I drew my automatic and fired off a couple of shots as I ran. Naturally, that did about as much good as uncorking a pop gun at it. The ant crawled over the top of the dune, its gray-black form almost invisible under the star-filled Arizona sky. If not for the headlights of my car, which I'd left on when I parked on the side of the highway, I'd have never seen the thing coming. Last time I stopped to relieve myself in an out-of-the-way spot while on an investigation. Remembering a movie I'd seen as a kid, I aimed my next shots at the beast's antenna and managed to hit one of the vulnerable areas in between the joints. I'd say it was a lucky strike, but three years in the service and five in the bureau had more to do with it than random chance. I may not be much of a scientist, but I do know how to shoot a gun. Disabling one antenna confused the beast, and it seemed to lose track of me for a moment. That gave me the precious time I needed to sprint for the car. The bug regained its senses and honed in once more, scenting me in the air or seeing me with its huge compound eyes. I don't know which, and I didn't really care. The point was, it was after me again, and, training or no, I was woefully unprepared to face an ant the size of a Studebaker. 
No flamethrowers, no bazookas, not even a Tommy gun in my trunk. How can an ant be as big as my sedan? Professor Tarragon explained it to me once. The size of these things has to do with adaptive mutation. No, giant bugs cannot be constructed the same way as your everyday pest. Their exoskeletons just don't scale up to support their weight, nor do their other systems. You could, however, easily fashion a replica of such a monster out of steel and other modern materials. Basically, that's what the bug's biology has done. Who knows what kind of stimulus would cause such a freakish and unlikely set of mutations? Well, Professor Tarragon probably does, but that's beside the point. The point is the giant insects are here, scattered throughout the U.S., and they're built like living tanks. I just didn't expect to find one while I was taking a whiz by the side of the road in the middle of nowhere, Arizona. Damn atomic testing. Obviously, we needed to expand the parameters of our investigation and call in the Marines. I reached my car with the bug a scant hundred yards behind. I rammed the Studebaker into gear. The transmission crunched and the tires squealed as I popped the clutch. I pounded the gas pedal all the way to the floor. The sedan shot forward, down the highway, across the shoulder, right at the giant bug. The ant kept coming, hurling straight from my onrushing vehicle. I felt like I was playing a nightmare version of chicken. They're not scared of anything, these bastards. I ran the ant with all the speed my six cylinders could muster. The front of the car folded up like tinfoil, but I cut the thing's legs out from under it like a star quarterback throwing a front-page tackle. Armored or no, the ant's legs were still its weak spot. The bug crumpled, spraying acrid-smelling vital fluids into the air. Half of the monster fell atop the sedan. The thing's head cracked open from the impact, but its carcass still crushed the Studebaker's passenger-side roof almost to the top of the front bench seat. I'd like to think that I avoided being killed because of good aim and fast reflexes, but mostly it was sheer luck and solid construction by the automaker's South Bend assembly line. Thanks, Studebaker. They don't call this model champion for nothing. The ant's huge jaws kept snapping, looking for prey for a full five minutes after it died. Those were long, anxious moments, let me tell you. The car's passenger compartment had crumpled around me but left me intact. I could even open the driver's side door to get out if I'd wanted to. As it was, I thought it the better part of Valor to stay in the sedan and call for reinforcements. I had a hell of a time reaching the two-way radio, though. It was located on the passenger side. It took me at least 15 minutes to dig out the handset. Fortunately, the electronics survived the crash. One ant down, one problem licked. God only knew how many more out there waiting to plague me, the Bureau, and the rest of the world. For all I knew, there were more of them lurking in the desert hills, watching me at that very moment. That's what we in the Bureau call job security. So I sat in the remains of the car and waited for backup. I also waited to finish taking that whiz. At least, now, I had plenty of time to zip up. And I'm sure at this very moment, right this instant, some smart-ass scientist is writing up some paper telling me how everything I just went through is physically impossible according to the cube square law and half a dozen other scientific principles I've never heard of. All I have to say to that wise guy is this. Take it up with Professor Tarragon. Or, better yet, take it up with the ants. <laughs> This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales, brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, A Scientific Problem, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced and edited by Christopher Mim and read by 
Christopher R. Mim. Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Visit us at www.atomictales.com. Please support the films of Christopher R. Milne by visiting SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2020 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. This is the Saint Euphoria Audiocast Network. Stephen D. Sullivan and Saint Euphoria present... Atomic Tales! Stories of science, mystery, and excitement. This episode features the latest adventure in our fantastic original series, Strange Invaders. Tonight's tale takes place shortly after our last adventure in a story we call Ghost Town Gambit. Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. I have to admit, this is one empty-looking town. Agent Seven remarked as she gazed down the sandy streets of the tiny southwestern community. If you can even call it a town, I noted. It looks like something out of an old Randolph Scott movie. Tumbleweed skittered across the unpaved streets, over the plank sidewalks, and between a double handful of sun-faded wooden buildings. Yeah, more like a cheap television western set. Seven agreed, brushing off her khaki trousers, which the high desert wind had already covered with yellowish dust. I did the same with my rumpled, deep blue pants. I appreciate you picking me up, I said, but I've been hoping to get a change of clothes before my next assignment. No time. Seven replied, walking from her agency Studebaker toward the first ramshackle structure. She scrutinized our surroundings with scientific intensity as she went. I checked my pistol. It never hurts to be prepared, and followed close behind. Something about this place was raising the hairs on the back of my neck, and it wasn't the dusty wind. The Bureau had reports of glowing disks in the area last month. And now? Seven edged to one of the town saloon's swinging doors, carefully pushed it open and peered inside. It seems like the entire populace has disappeared. Both of us scoped out the weathered bar, but the place was definitely deserted. All 19 of them, she concluded. And the Terragons think it's related to flying saucers somehow? Seven frowned and strolled down the creaky boardwalk toward the next building, a general store, judging by the sign. The Doc and her dad don't think anything, Agent One. Seven told me. They need more info, which is why they sent me to scout the situation. And me. She frowned playfully. You just happened to be on the way. If you hadn't wrecked another car, you would have been home by now. Hazard of the job, I replied. At least when you're on the case. Don't make me wish they'd sent your brother instead of you, Seven. She laughed. You think this requires more muscle than brains? I don't think anything yet, I... Both Seven and I hit the deck. The boardwalk groaned under us. Was that a shot? She asked, reaching for her pistol. Maybe, I replied. The automatic was already in my hand. Sounded like it came from near the car. Keep low. This place might not be so deserted after all. Staying in a crouch, I hurried to the edge of the boardwalk with Seven right behind. I peeked around the corner to where we'd left the Bureau Studebaker. Then I relaxed slightly and holstered my gun. What is it? She asked, glancing around my shoulder. Just a blowout. Must be the desert heat. 
You have a spare, I assume. Unless the agency shorted us. She replied, starting to holster her weapon as well. Her face fell. But not two spares. Rats. We'll have to find a phone or telegraph. Or maybe this so-called town has a filling station with new tires at its far end. Yeah, maybe, I said. My gun rested in my hand again. But first, I think we have to get out of this alive. What do you... The groaning sound of crumpling metal interrupted her. We both watched in horror as something began to drag the rear of the Studebaker into the sandy ground. Hey! Seven said, running forward, gun in hand. That's my car! Ruth, don't! I cried, sprinting after her. The car stopped moving. The ground trembled under me as I grabbed Agent Seven around the waist and jumped with all my might. We landed maybe three yards farther on, which was just enough to take us away from the hole that had been opening under her feet. What the heck? Seven blurted as out of the hole came a living nightmare. An insect head as big as a keg of beer with pincers like butcher knives. The thing snapped its terrible jaws several times at the space we had just vacated. And then the monster disappeared back into its sandy hole. Move! I shouted, springing to my feet and running back toward the boardwalk. Seven followed, hot on my heels. More giant ants? I shook my head. Ants don't attack from underground. This is something else. Something new. How can a bug be so big? She asked, incredulous. I mean, I read the reports from you and the others, but... Get Tarragon to explain it to you. Which one? Either. Now the boardwalk was shaking under us. Apparently our vibrations were attracting this monster. Jump back, I commanded, and both of us did. Just in time, as the boardwalk in front of us erupted into a spray of broken planks and nasty splinters. Centipede! I cried as I took aim and fired. She shot as well. My bullet hit the thing in one of its oversized eyes. Sevens ricocheted harmlessly off the monster's reddish carapace, but the wound I gave it was enough to drive the thing back underground. I glared at my fellow agent. Hey, I'm not Deadeye Corrigan, okay? She explained, red in the face. Your brother's a better shot, I observed, angrier than I should have been. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I wish he was here instead of me, too. Sorry, I replied. That was unprofessional of me. Just keep still, she hissed. I think it can sense our vibrations. I froze in place. I'd guessed that. Okay, what's next? Can you heave that rain barrel into the street? Draw it away from us? I grunted as I tried to lift the keg resting on the boardwalk next to me, but it was probably a quarter full. Too heavy. A solid kick knocked it over, though, and the barrel rolled, sloshing as it went, down the hard-packed street. The ground shook beneath us once more. What now? I asked. It's distracted. Back to the car. I have a plan. We ran back the way we'd come as the monster centipede burst from the street and crushed the rain barrel in one bite. I think I know what happened to those missing people, I said. Not flying saucers. Seven agreed. Keep that thing occupied, would you? Sure, I said, kicking over another rain barrel. This one wasn't full at all, and the monster was on it in an instant. I took the opportunity to put out its other eye with a well-aimed shot. The thing screeched horribly as it dove back underground. At least now it'd be looking for us blind. Seven reached the Studebaker and started fiddling around near the driver's rear quarter panel. Get over here, would you? She instructed. Jump up and down on that side. We need to get the car to bounce a bit. Why? Vibrations to attract that thing. We gonna be its lunch? I asked nervously. Not if we're lucky. She replied. Seven's a field science expert, so I wasn't about to argue with her, whatever her plan might be. I got on the passenger side, just in front of the rear wheel wells, and started bouncing for all I was worth. 
She did the same on the driver's side. The back of the car was sunk in the ground up to the bumper already, so the whole thing felt pretty stiff, but working together, Seven and I soon got a decent rhythm going. Then the Studebaker started to shake on its own as the blinded monster's pincers grabbed onto the back, and the gigantic bug started to drag the automobile under again, this time in earnest. Keep shaking! We wanted to think it's got a live one! Just as long as we're not the live ones it's got. We kept bouncing as the car quickly sank into the sandy street. Now jump! Seven shouted. Get as far away as you can! I leapt, landed five yards from the rapidly vanishing hulk, and kept rolling, just in case. Seven jumped too, and I saw something flash in her hand. A cigarette lighter? Just before she did. She rolled onto her feet when she landed and pointed toward the ramshackle buildings. Both of us ran as fast as we could, reaching the boardwalk on the far side of the street from the doomed car just as... A muffled explosion shook the whole place and sent Seven and me toppling to our knees. If you know what you're doing, a full gas tank can make a heck of an explosion. Seven knew what she was doing. She stood and laughed, brushing off dust once more. Still wish they'd set my brother? I shook my head as I rose. No, ma'am. One thing worries me, though. What if there are more of these monsters? Seven took a deep breath and sighed it out. The briefing said this was an old mining town, so I guess more of those buggers could be lurking underground. And if they are? Well, did you happen to notice the big propane tank on the edge of town? I smiled and nodded, and to think, I used to wonder why they called you Ruthless Ruth Donlevy. Agent Seven grinned. If the name fits. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales, brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, Ghost Town Gambit, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced and edited by yours truly, Christopher R. Mim. Read by Christopher R. Mim and featured Stephanie Mim as Agent 7, Ruthless Ruth Donlevy. Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Visit us at www.atomictales.com. Please support the films of Christopher R. Milne by visiting sainteuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at paysteve.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2020 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. This is the St. Euphoria Audiocast Network. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present... Atomic Tales! Stories of science, mystery, and excitement. This episode features the latest adventure in our fantastic original series, Strange Invaders. Tonight, we continue our adventures and reveal a bit about the start of the invasion in a story we call... Bugged by Flying Saucers. Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of... Atomic Tales! I didn't get this job because of my dad. The young blonde driving our bureau car remarked out of the blue. I never said you did, I replied. But you thought it. She insisted. Everybody at the agency does. 
Just because my dad's a general. And the liaison to the U.S. Science Bureau, I noted, and immediately regretted doing so out loud. Gloria G.G. Brock turned and glared at me in the back seat. I'm not just a secretarial assistant, Agent One. I have a degree, you know. One day, I'm gonna be an agent. I'm sure, I replied. But could you keep your eyes on the road while you drive, please? My chauffeur, come future agent, turned back to driving and laughed. Afraid you'll lose another bureau car? What is it, two now in less than a month? The second one was Agent Sevens, and this one would be on you if you put us in a ditch. But you were there when that second car got destroyed. She continued, ignoring my dig. I nodded. Guilty as charged. It was the bugs again, right? She asked. Gigi had passed all her security clearances, so even though she was a new hand at the Bureau, I felt safe being candid with her. Yeah. She gave an impressed whistle. Giant bugs, who'd have thought? How'd this all start? I mean, I've read the files, but you were there too, right? Yep. So tell me about it. If I'm going to be an agent, I need to know what it's like in the field. I could see no polite way to weasel out of this conversation, so I settled into the back seat and resigned myself to filling her in. It would be a long drive to the airport for my rendezvous with Agent 2 anyway. Okay, here's the deal. I have to admit, I wasn't too impressed when Prof Tarragon sent me out to investigate a series of flying saucer reports in the Rockies. People have been seeing unidentified objects in the sky since the Kenneth Arnold sightings back in 47, right? Gigi nodded enthusiastically as she drove. You bet. As with a lot of incidents, I continued, the center of these sightings was pretty remote, but, like any good agent, I quickly made my way via the nearest airport and then picking up a bureau car to the town of Moret, Colorado, population 150. How long have you been seeing these lights, Mr. Jensen? I asked. Oh, a few weeks now, I guess. But call me Tim, stranger. Everybody does. I didn't quite catch your name, Mr... The scrawny middle-aged man flashed me a gap-toothed smile. He was dressed in jeans, work boots, and a red and black flannel shirt. Against the chill of the late spring evening, he smelled of tobacco and stale beer. Agent Raymond, I replied. It's bureau policy to give only first names when possible. Luckily, mine can pass for either, avoiding the need to elaborate. FBI? Jensen inquired. Something like that. I said, briefly flashing my Science Bureau shield. USSB, official government business. He nodded knowingly. I figured some of you government types would want in on this. That's why I called the Air Force. They didn't seem too interested when I called, but... But here I am. So, what made you contact us? Well, it ain't natural, is it? Things buzzing about the sky like that, not making no sound? They ain't airplanes, I can tell you that. Oh, you certain about that? You bet your boots I am. I worked a carrier back in the war, Pacific Theater. Ain't no planes of ours can move like that. None of the Japs neither. Silent as ghosts they were. And one minute they're flitting about over the trees and between the mountains, and then the next, boom, vanished. Shoot right up into the sky, faster than you can see, I expect. I didn't used to believe in flying saucers, but now... He trailed off, thoughtfully, gazing down from his mountainside cabin into the wooded valley stretching out below. The scent of the pine trees wafted to us on a gentle evening breeze. The sun had set and darkness was closing in. The first stars already blazed brightly in the cerulean sky overhead. So they're saucer-shaped? I asked. Jensen scratched his balding head. 
Well, not exactly. It's hard to describe. They're big lights and they glow like a yellowish green. Sometimes they flash. Sometimes they just burn bright. How big, would you say? Hard to tell. Up on the mountainside with them so far away, but I'd say maybe five or ten yards across. Maybe more. And like I say, they're moving fast and there's one now. He pointed down into the wooded valley below and sure enough, a bright green light flitted over the treetops. It moved erratically, sometimes looping or turning at obtuse angles, sometimes vanishing for a few moments before reappearing somewhere nearby. I told you, Jensen enthused. Silent as ghosts. Ain't no aircraft can move like that. Reluctantly, I had to agree. I had no way to tell how big the thing was, but it was too persistent and moved too strangely to be fireworks or any kind of aircraft I knew. Let's go check it out, I suggested. You know these woods better than I do, Tim. Jensen paled. No, thank you, Mr. Agent, sir. I don't want to turn into no mindless alien slave. I seen that They Come From Outer Space movie. You go look if you like, but pardon me if I don't put my neck in the same noose. Disagreeing would have been pointless. So with a few grumbled words of thanks, I fetched my flashlight and my pistol from the glove compartment of my Studebaker and hiked downhill toward the phenomenon. As I went, a second weird light joined the first, darting above the treetops in the valley, moving very fast and changing direction frequently. Soon, it and the first light were circling each other, before veering off and streaking between the rocky mountainsides. Definitely not swamp gas, I muttered to myself as the slope leveled off. I couldn't help but feel that there was some kind of intelligence behind the movement of those uncanny glows. And then, a third light appeared, and a fourth, joining the others in their weird aerial ballet. I squinted into the gathering darkness, still trying to determine how large the objects were, or what their true shape might be, but to no avail. The circle of illumination from my flashlight played across the bed of pine needles and low scrub ahead of me, but I still missed my footing on the uneven ground. I stumbled, and for a moment the beam careened wildly across the treetops and into the sky as I tried to both keep my footing and hang on to the light's sturdy metal housing. Just as I righted myself, one of the circling lights suddenly broke off from the rest and veered in my direction, its glow flashing brighter as it came. I dropped the flashlight and caught my balance, drew my gun and took aim. Don't make me shoot whatever you are, I called, well aware that the thing might not hear me or even understand English. I ducked as it zipped overhead, a drumbeat buzzing sound droning in my ears. The thing wasn't nearly as large as I'd guessed from a distance, but moving at that speed I figured it could still take my head off. It looped around a tree trunk and came back at me. Halt, or I'll shoot, I warned. It didn't stop. It streaked straight toward me. I fired. Three shots, dead center, just like they teach you in the service. The light seemed to break up. The weird buzzing sputtered and my oddball opponent tumbled to the ground. Turned out, it wasn't that big at all. Only a bit larger than a dinner plate. Its glow pulsed as it writhed on the ground, dying. Its six spiky legs flailing. I'll be damned. A firefly. Needless to say, it was a lot bigger than any firefly I'd ever seen before. I felt kind of bad that I'd killed it. I picked up my flashlight from the forest floor and kept the beam aimed at the ground. The rest of the oversized bugs, there were half a dozen of them at the peak of their activity, left me alone. Strangely, the body of the one I'd killed quickly disintegrated, decaying in mere moments into a pool of foul-smelling bug guts and glowing greenish goo. In a moment, even the small remainder disappeared, sinking into the soil or evaporating. 
It left not a single sample for me to take back to the Bureau, much to the disappointment of the doc and our other scientists. When I reported to HQ, Professor Tarragon informed me that the insects were harmless pollen eaters and shouldn't be a threat to humans, even at that freakish size. The Bureau sent out Agents 7 and 9 to collect evidence and take pictures, but we were unable to lure the giant fireflies into coming anywhere near us after my initial encounter. Maybe they'd learned it was dangerous to mess with human beings. I gazed out the Studebaker's window, watching the last glow of sunset disappear behind the trees as the car neared the small airfield. That might have been the end of it if the incidents had stopped there. After all, what's a few big fireflies putting on a light show in Colorado every spring? Jensen and the locals in Moret were pretty happy about the bugs, figured they had a new tourist attraction, one they didn't even have to feed or maintain. I shook my head ruefully. How could any of us, even the tarragons or the other big brains in the Bureau, know those fireflies would just be the start? What do you think is going on with all this weird stuff, Agent One? Who knows? At first, we thought the bugs were just a natural mutation. Later, Doc Tarragon posited the outlandish growth might be related to atomic radiation. Moret is downwind from a few test sites. But now, giant bugs popping up, UFOs buzzing the skies, reports of unnatural creatures haunting the U.S. Things used to be so normal, my young chauffeur opined. Now it's almost like we're caught in some kind of strange invasion. Yeah, almost, I mused. So, you said that Colorado was only the start. What happened next? When did the Terragons decide there was more to it? When did the Bureau expand, and... I thought you said you'd read the files. I did, but hearing you talk about it really makes the whole thing come alive. For a moment, I almost thought she was flirting with me, but I quickly dismissed the idea. She was cute, I'll admit, but she was also barely old enough to vote, and a general's daughter to boot. Whatever happened after that, we'll have to wait for our next ride, I replied with a grin. We're here, and I've got a plane waiting. Keep your nose clean. Agent Brock. I will. She assured me. Don't take any wooden nickels, Agent One. I won't. (laughs) And try not to crash Agent Two's car. She added laughingly. The Bureau's not made out of money, you know. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales, brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, Bugged by Flying Saucers, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced, edited, and read by Christopher R. Mim and featured Gwen Ruhoff as Gloria Gigi Brock. Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Visit us at www.atomictales.com. Please support the films of Christopher R. Milne by visiting SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2021 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. This is the Saint Euphoria Audiocast Network. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present... Atomic Tales!
Stories of science, mystery, and excitement. This episode features the latest adventure in our fantastic original series, Strange Invaders. Tonight, Agents 1 and 2 of the U.S. Science Bureau investigate strange lights in the sky in The UFO You Know. Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. Duck! I dove to the ground and Agent 2 did the same, both of us quickly flattening against the leaves and dry grass just outside the Air Force Base's perimeter. The hair on the back of my neck bristled and a wave of heat washed over us as the glowing object zoomed past overhead. Hell's bells! What was that? Agent 2, also known as Buster Ace Freeman, asked. Damned if I know, I replied as the two of us scrambled to our feet. The glowing disc-shaped object had angled right for us as we were getting the lay of the land. It moved too fast to get a good estimate of its size before we hit the deck. So not giant fireflies this time, Two said. Probably not. The greenish, unidentified flying object streaked over the nearby forest. Fortunately, a firebreak ran through those woods. Come on, let's see if we can catch it. Agent Two and I dashed for the Bureau Studebaker and Ace took the wheel. The starter sputtered and refused to catch. Son of a- Ace cursed, getting back out of the car. Ray, try to start it when I say. I slid across the Studebaker's bench seat to the driver's side. Ace is the best mechanic in the agency. If anyone could get this car started, it was him. He popped the hood and peered inside, his nimble hands flying over several parts of the engine, checking connections. I I don't see anything. Try it again. Nothing, I frowned as the UFO vanished behind the tree line. Forget it, Ace. It's gone. He slammed the hood shut. Shoot. I guess we're hoofing it to the base, then. Suddenly, the champion's six cylinders roared to life. I slid back to the passenger side. What the? Ace took the wheel again, looking frustrated. Just like the Foo Fighters back in the war. Electronics all went crazy around them. I nodded. At least we don't have to walk to base command. Greenpoint Air Force Base looked almost deserted after we checked in at the gate. As we pulled up to the compound, a tall, middle-aged man in a captain's uniform hurried out of the base office. Two and I got out of the Studebaker to greet him. Captain Koch, I assume, I said. It's spelled Koch, but it's pronounced Cook. Captain Cook replied, shaking hands with both of us. You from the U.S. Science Bureau? Yeah, I said. I'm Agent 1 and this is Agent 2. Always nice to meet a fellow Air Force man. Two added. Cook nodded appreciatively. Tuskegee? Yep. Two affirmed. Saw some action in the Pacific, too. Glad to have you both here. Cook said. Can you believe this? He indicated the nearly empty complex surrounding us. Only a few uniformed airmen hustled between the standard military-issue buildings and a single jeep sat alone and empty by the mess hall. During wartime, we had nearly 40 officers here and over a thousand military personnel and trainees, plus civilians. Cook continued. Now, less than 100 total. Back then, we'd have been able to handle this flap ourselves, though I am grateful to have you here. Thanks, I said. We have some experience in this area. I hope so. Cook replied. We've been seeing these things for weeks now, off and on. Project Blue Book sent some boys in last week. They didn't find Diddley. Said it was swamp gas. Overeducated idiots. Was a swamp gas that set off our radar? Was a swamp gas that caused a power outage and stalled our vehicles? 
Not likely, Agent 2 agreed. And it wasn't swamp gas that buzzed us when we stopped to get the lay of the land, I added. You saw something? Cook asked. Our tower had a brief hit on radar, but nobody got a visual. Went northwest over the woods, I told him. Cook rubbed his stubbly chin. I judged that he was one of those guys who could shave twice a day and still have a five o'clock shadow. Yeah, that makes sense. We had a fence guard go AWOL out that way last night after somebody reported lights. Haven't been able to turn him up since. Those woods beyond the fence have gotten pretty thick since the war. Mind if we give the whole shebang another look? I asked. Cook smiled. Knock yourselves out. I barely have enough personnel to fill a bucket, never mind chasing down every gold brick out pitching woo to some local girl. This base is shutting down, you know. Everything's moving to Wright-Patterson. Abras decided this isn't a good site to convert to nuclear defense? Two asked. Cook's eyes narrowed. That's supposed to be classified. We've both got top clearance, I assured him. I believe the Bureau mentioned that when we said we'd be dropping by. Slipped my mind. He admitted. Science Bureau. There's an agency for everything nowadays. I'll be a science fiction bureau, next thing you know. He sighed before continuing. You guys look around as much as you need. Let me know if you can find more than those blue book jokers did. And if you turn up that gold-bricking Corporal Kaiser, take him to the MPs. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Sure thing, I said. You mind if we borrow one of your jeeps? I'm not sure our Studebaker can handle some of the terrain around the perimeter. No problem, Cook replied. Come on in the office and get the keys. You guys want to grape knee-high or something? Forty-five minutes later, Agent Two and I had maneuvered the jeep into the forest outside the base perimeter, near where we last saw the UFO. But we'd already reached a patch where even the jeep couldn't squeeze between the trees. Admit it, Two said as he hopped out. You requisitioned this jeep just so you wouldn't wreck another car. I groaned. Well, I never live that down. Not so long as their mouths at the bureau tell the tale, he replied with a laugh. Well, this jeep isn't wrecked yet. I checked my compass. I think the UFO kept going northwest from here. Ace frowned. Your compass must be busted. Check the sun. You're headed almost due west. You're right. Check yours. Damn. Mine's off too. My watch has stopped. Magnetized. Which means... If we follow our compass deviations, we should hit what's causing these disturbances, I concluded. My bet's on that Foo Fighter. Yeah. Maybe. I drew my pistol and Ace did too. Keep your eyes peeled. Together we moved into the woods, quickly but cautiously. The Midwestern summer afternoon was warm, but not too humid. We were lucky in that respect. The trees weren't huge, but the ground cover was fairly thick with ferns and bracken. The smell of wild greenery and the sounds of insects, birds, and even a frog or two filled the air. Then suddenly, it got quiet. Ace glanced at me and pointed. Check it out. Both his finger and my compass needle indicated the same direction. Ahead, a vague yellow-green glow leaked through the foliage as the late afternoon sun cast long, dark shadows through the forest. Reflected sunlight, I ventured. Two shook his head and tapped his ear with his index finger. I heard it now, too. A vague humming. Not insects. More like electricity coursing through power lines. We signaled each other to close in, both keeping our weapons drawn. He went right, I went left. The rough ground made staying silent hard, but as the shadows around us deepened, the glow resolved into the same object that had buzzed us earlier. The forest opened up, and there it sat, some weird glowing thing hovering two yards above the clearing. 
The intense yellow-green glow made the UFO hard to look at, but the shape was like a football or maybe a saucer. The air stank of ozone, and the hair on my arms, the back of my neck, and even crew cuts stood on end. That, plus a burst of intuition, caused me to do something an agent is never supposed to do. I dropped my gun. A beam of light streaked out of the craft and hit my weapon as it tumbled to the ground. To my right, Agent 2 opened fired, likely thinking I was under attack. The whole world vanished in a flash of brilliant light, and I suddenly found myself sitting on my keister on the forest floor. Agent 1, you okay? Ace called to me. He'd been knocked down as well. Yeah, yeah, I replied. What happened? Did it zip into space or just vanish? He shook his head as we rose and staggered toward each other. Don't know. Could have been some kind of electrical phenomenon discharged into the ground through our weapons. I thought it was attacking. Thanks for jumping to my defense. I retrieved my pistol from the brush nearby. Weirdly, it was stone cold but melted. Useless. I holstered it anyway. All the plants in the clearing had been flattened like they'd been run over by a steamroller. A low moaning came from the forest across from us. We hurried that way and found a twenty-something soldier laying on his back near the edge of the woods. Corporal Kaiser, I presume? I said, reading the name badge on his uniform. The guy nodded and rubbed the back of his skull. Are you okay? Two asked, helping him up. Yeah, Kaiser replied. Just a crick in my neck. He peered through the trees at the sun, just hitting the horizon. Jeez, have I been out all night? Longer than that, I told him. It's sunset. You've been missing for most of a day. What happened? Kaiser shook his head. It was the UFO, you know. I was following it, and I guess it must have knocked me cold. He rubbed his neck again. We better get you back to the base. Two suggested. I'm sure the docks will want to look you over. Yeah, okay. Two and I supported him as we trudged back toward the jeep. Agent Two grinned at me as we went. Well, you lost a weapon this time out, Agent One, but at least you didn't wreck any cars. What could I do but laugh? (laughs) Hey, nobody's perfect. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales. Brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions and the Monster Conservancy. Tonight's episode, The UFO You Know, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced, edited, and read by Christopher R. Mim and featured Fred Goodrum as Agent 2, a.k.a. Ace Freeman, Derek Cook as Captain Cook, and Elliot Mim as Corporal Kaiser. Special thanks to Ron Patla for help with military research. Any errors are not his fault. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2021 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. Join the conversation at SaveMonsters.com. This is the St. Euphoria Audiocast Network. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present... Atomic Tales! Stories of science, mystery, and excitement. This episode features the latest adventure in our fantastic original series, Strange Invaders. 
Tonight, our intrepid agents venture to the Rocky Mountains in search of flying saucers and more in our story, Snow Monster. Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. Never mind the UFO sightings, Mr. Agent, sir. The park agent said. You think they did this? She indicated the small, destroyed trail cabin nearby. It looked like a tornado had hit it. A mass of splintered timbers and rubble lay under a few inches of very early snow. Avalanche, maybe. Agent Forrest suggested, eyeing the nearby glacier. The three of us stood near the base of the Never Summer Mountains, and they got their name for a reason. No, sir. The ranger insisted. Not lights in the sky, nor avalanche. It was the snow monster. Agent Four and I exchanged a skeptical glance. The ranger scowled at us. Don't you two smarty-pants federal agents look at me like that. I'm not crazy, and neither are the folks that things been terrorizing for the past weeks. A bear, maybe, I offered. Do I look like a ranger who doesn't know a bear from her backside? So you've seen it, I said. Well, no. She admitted. But some pretty reliable people have. Experienced hikers. A couple of them were nearly scared to death. They said it was huge, with long, shaggy fur, glowing red eyes, and fangs as long as your hand. Nice. Four commented. And I've seen tracks. Bare footprints as big as a snowshoe. The woman ranger continued. Not a lot of hikers coming through here since the monster rumors got out. I rubbed my chin. So these sightings began at the same time as the flying saucer reports? I guess... The ranger mused. Now that you mention it, do you think the two are connected? Agent Four flashed her his best lady killer smile. Don't worry, he said. The U.S. Science Bureau is here now. We'll figure it out. Remind me again what I'm doing here, Agent One. Agent Four complained as we trudged across the rocky, snow-dappled slopes. I thought you were figuring it out for the pretty ranger, I replied. Alec Boom Boom Murphy rolled his blue eyes. Clearly, the allure of the local girl had worn off during our long, sweaty hike in the chilly mountain air. I mean... He continued, ignoring my riposte. The army's got a line on another giant ant nest. I should be with them, blowing up bugs. Instead, we're on some yeti snipe hunt. Why don't they send Agent Seven with you? She actually digs UFOs and weird monsters. Seven's with Agent Eight, looking into that fisheries situation off the California coast, I replied. Besides, all of us go where the Terragons and the Bureau tell us. Right now, that's here. On a godforsaken slope in a mountain range where it snows even during the summer, looking for either flying saucers that don't exist, or a monster that is most likely a mangy bear. That's about the size of it. Four scowled. He truly was most at home on short assignments where he got to blow things up. But ever since my encounter with a giant ant in the desert, the Bureau had rules about agents only working in pairs, and Agent Zero had Four's number at the top of the duty roster for this assignment. Four extricated his binoculars from his overloaded backpack. He always brought more gear than anybody really needed, and scanned the nearby slopes. I wish we could leave the UFOs to the Blue Book boys. He griped. No can do. Too many strange objects in the sky associated with our bug problem. Yeah, I know. Ever since your fireflies. He let his field glasses down and pointed. Do those look like tracks to you? I trained my binoculars toward the snowfield, he indicated. Could be, I agreed. It's close to one of the sightings the ranger marked. He observed, checking our map. UFO or Yeti? Monster. I checked my sidearm and he did the same. Let's go take a look, I said. 
It took us the better part of an hour to hike to the slope we'd seen from afar. The snowy terrain was rough and the air was thin here. Neither of us had acclimated to the altitude, so we were both pretty winded by the time we located the tracks. We'd passed another small cabin nearly hidden under the recent snowfall on our way. Unlike the one where we'd met the ranger, this shelter remained intact. Bear? Four asked, peering at the huge prints. I shook my head. Snow's too melted to tell for sure. Weird they're in a straight line, though. Yeah. He agreed. Almost like the animal was walking on two feet. Suppose we have to follow these. I suppose we do. Looks like they're headed under that high glacier. It does. He swore. I leaned up against a nearby tree. We were still below the tree line, but were rapidly running out of forest as the glacier loomed ahead of us. No law that says we can't catch a breather before we go. Four nodded and lit a cigar. Not my idea of a breather, but... I've never been sure if he actually liked the things or if he just liked playing with fire. Fire often came in handy in Four's line of work. A short smoke and a bit of a hike later, we passed the last of the trees and trudged onto the glacier. The late afternoon air smelled clean but was cold enough to make my sinuses ache. The tracks seemed to head straight up the mountaintop, which remained hidden in shadow as the sun crept into the west. We kept going, slogging through the snow and ice. I wished we'd brought snowshoes instead of sturdy hiking boots. We don't have a lot of daylight left, Four noted. I have to shelter in that cabin we passed. That's what they're there for, I replied. Wait a minute. Is that blood? Sure looks like it. We hadn't noticed it before, but big, dark red blotches now stained the snow near the snowshoe-sized prints. The tracks were far bigger than any man, or even any bear, I'd heard of, though snowmelt has been known to enlarge spore. We loosened our guns in their holsters. Four pointed. Look, some kind of carcass. The rib bones of a large animal poked out of the snow a few hundred yards upslope, near an outcrop of shadowy rock. The bones still had chunks of flesh clinging to them, and they glistened red in the retreating sunlight. Just then, the wind shifted and the smell hit us. Awful. Gamey. Like rotting meat mixed with matted wet fur. Ugh! I gasped, trying to wave the scent away from my nose. Elk, do you think? Four stopped in his tracks. Ray, those ribs. There's steam rising from them. They're fresh. An ear-splitting howl echoed across the mountainside as something, some thing, leapt out from behind the rocks and bounded downhill toward us. It was huge, almost twice as big as a man. Shaggy, stone-gray fur covered its dirty hide. Fury blazed in its red eyes, and steaming saliva dripped from its gleaming yellow fangs. It stank like a herd of skunks that had been run over by a half-track. The thing lumbered toward us at a frightening clip, running almost like a human being. One thing for sure, this was no bear. Yeti! Four blurted. Shoot! I yelled. Both of us fired, but the shots didn't even slow the beast down. Run! I commanded, but both of us were doing it anyway. We needed to put some distance between us and the rapidly advancing snow monster. We kept shooting as we went, barely slowing thanks to our years of combat training and practice. Most of the shots did no good, though nearly all of them slammed into the ape-like thing's furry carcass. Then I got lucky and clipped the yeti near its glowing red eyes. That made the monster pause for a moment, and its cry of rage rattled both our bones and the snowy mountainside cliff. Come on, Alec, I cried, noticing Agent Four had slowed. If we can reach that cabin, we can hold it off. Four shook his head as he shrugged out of his heavy pack. I'll never make it unless I can slow this thing down. 
You keep going, Ray. I'll catch up. I knew better than to argue. In the Bureau, you have to trust your teammates, even if what they're doing seems damn crazy. Despite that, I did manage to pump three more shots into the beast as I went. The snow monster paused long enough to chuck a couple of ice boulders at me. I barely managed to duck the frozen missiles as they crashed into the trees nearby, but at least I'd bought Agent 4 another few seconds. I reached the trees with Alec, much lighter now without his pack, sprinting close behind. The creature came barreling down on us like a runaway train. Ray, take cover! Four shouted. I barely had time to shelter behind a thick copse of trees as the whole mountainside trembled. A rumble like the worst storm ever shook me to my bones as an avalanche thundered down slope. The monster wailed in pain and terror as tons of snow, ice, and cascading rock engulfed it and swept the thing over the side of the mountain into a deep glacial ravine hundreds of feet below. I leaned against the trees and caught my breath. Happily, I spotted Alec doing the same thing behind a nearby boulder. The snowslide had almost buried us, as well as the monster, but we'd made it. Just can't resist blowing things to hell, can you? I kidded. Agent 4 grinned. Gotta earn my nickname somehow. Nice job, Boom Boom. He nodded, as sweaty and worn out as I was. Thanks for keeping that thing off me. Did you notice the color of its blood? Yeah, green. The blood had glowed, too, like the firefly I'd killed at the start of the bug invasion. What's it mean? I shrugged. It means the doc's gonna be ticked that we're not bringing back samples. Four laughed as he lit a fresh cigar. <laughs> if Dr. Shannon Tarragon wants a piece of that snow monster, she can come here and dig it out herself. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales, brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, Snow Monster, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced, edited, and read by Christopher R. Mim and featured Elliot Mim as Agent 4, Alec Boom Boom Murphy, and Emily Broick as the Park Ranger. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at stEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at paysteve.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2021 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. This is the St. Euphoria Audiocast Network. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present... Atomic Tales! Stories of science, mystery, and excitement. This episode features the latest adventure in our fantastic original series, Strange Invaders. Tonight, we continue our adventures as our heroes investigate a curious fisheries problem off the U.S. Pacific coast in Bugs on Board. Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales! Look alive, you two. The crab boat's first mate commanded. I don't care what government agency you're from. If you mess up our catch, you'll find yourself swimming home. Agent 8 and I nimbly stepped out of the way as the mate and the rest of the crew of the Dragnet Danny hauled another set of crab pots onto the ship's deck 
and added a handful of fat crustaceans to their catch. U.S. Science Bureau. Eight reminded our host. The mate squinted at us appraisingly. That's a fisheries thing, right? Too bad you came all this way for such a scrawn to catch. <laughs> he laughed bitterly. You want to weigh each of these babies? Not fisheries, I replied. Just looking into the recent fishing boat disappearances. Oh, yeah. The first mate said. Captain Dan mentioned that. Don't know what you expect to find. <laughs> he chuckled again, then added. Is that maybe a husband for you, uh, miss? Agent Seven, I replied coolly. If we knew what we were looking for, Eight interjected, we wouldn't be here. We'd have to call an airstrike. <laughs> he laughed, but his reply made the sailor nervous. You could do that? The gruff seaman asked warily. Only if necessary, I assured him. Or if we end up swimming. He swallowed hard and went back to work with the rest of the crew. Agent 8 shot me a sly, collegial grin. You don't really think that flying saucers are responsible for these fishing boats going missing, do you, Seven? He asked. The two of us resumed scanning the horizon for lights in the sky or anything unusual. I shrugged. Since we don't know what UFOs are at this point, it's hard to tell. But there have been sightings in this area, and four ships have gone missing. Five, you can count that beat-up ghost ship the Coast Guard salvage. Yeah. I'm just the muscle here, Ruth. Eight continued. You're the science buff. You or the Terragon's got any theories? Too early for theories, Bill. We need more facts. I returned his smile. That's why we're here. I'll tell you one fact. He said. Donna is going to kill me when I get back in my clothes soaked with salt and smelling like fish. He gave his slicker a cursory sniff and then held his nose. I chuckled. Things were pretty stinky here. Tell Donna to be glad that I talked Agent Zero into letting us wear civilian garb for this job. Just imagine the dry cleaning bill if you'd been in a suit. Eight glanced sideways at me, unsure whether I was serious or not. I let him wonder. Bill's a nice enough guy, and great in a tussle. They don't call him Wild Bill Hayes for nothing. But he's not the sharpest pencil in the box. He and his wife Donna are well suited to each other, both long on looks and short on brains. Having Bill along is better than being stuck with my brother on an assignment, though. I never have to argue with Eight, because I outrank him. My brother Richard, on the other hand, is Agent Six, and he never lets me forget it. As the ship cruised along to its next set of pots, Eight and I kept our eyes peeled. Nightfall over the Pacific cast lovely shades of orange and purple across the sky and sea, but it also brought a chill to the air. I buttoned my slicker and started to lick the ocean spray off my lips, but then remembered myself and wiped the moisture away with the back of my sleeve instead. Salt water stings the eyes, and consuming it will make you sick quickly. Better not to even enjoy a bit of its tempting saltiness. I took a swig of fresh water from my canteen and then offered it to Eight. He drank. Not gin? He asked, feigning disappointment. I laughed and clipped the canteen back into my belt. Eight and I needed to stay on our toes. This wasn't a relaxing cruise. Little mistakes on the open ocean can get you killed. Especially at night. Far to the west, I could just make out spotlights from the San Diego airport playing over the low-hanging summer clouds. That wasn't a swim I wanted to make. I hope we see one of these things, Eight said. A flying saucer, I mean. I never have yet. Have you? Hard to say. I've seen some lights, but... I shrugged. Yeah, my wife's been getting into the saucer craze. He went on. You know, that contact tea thing where people say they've talked to the aliens... She thinks that's all real. What do you think, Ruth? I shook my head. Not enough info, but I remain skeptical. 
Yeah, it seems pretty batty to me. But if it keeps Donna happy and away from the bingo hall. The crew of the Dragnet Danny was hauling in another line now. From the way they were grumbling, they didn't seem too pleased. Their take had been unseasonably light recently. Other local boats had reported a steep fall-off in Catch 2. Those boats that actually returned to port, anyway. A gap-toothed crewman grinned as he pulled on the line. Feels heavy. Maybe we got a good haul this time. Better not just be seaweed, snarled the first mate. Many more days like this and we'll all be looking for landlubber jobs. No, man. I got a feeling about this. This time, I think we got lucky! His scream ended with a sudden splash as he pitched overboard. Everyone on deck ran to where the fishermen had disappeared. But before we reached the spot, all of us skidded to a stop. Up over the ship's rail surged a living nightmare. It looked like a pillbug, segmented and heavily armored with feelers and multiple sharp-tined legs. But it was pale as death and as big as one of the agency's Studebakers. It scrambled onto the deck, climbing up the line of the crab pots. What the devil? The ship's mate blurted. He'd been closest to the rail as the giant bug emerged from the sea. But now he backed away fast. Aid and I had already drawn our sidearms, but a crew member with an axe ran into our field of fire. With an angry scream, he hit the thing on its armored carapace. The axe barely left a scratch, and a swipe of one of the bug's segmented legs sent him sprawling to the deck, bleeding. Ada and I both fired, twice. But her shots had little more effect than the axe. As the first mate dragged the injured crewman away and all of us back toward the wheelhouse, a second bug clamored aboard, and then a third. What were these things? Agent 8 asked as we retreated. Trilobites? Sea isopods, I replied, but a hundred times larger than any ever reported. Any bright ideas, science girl? Shoot for the antennae. They use them to see. Their eyes are stunted from living in the depths. Take the right on the lead bug. We hit our targets, and the bug at the front of the pack shrieked and flailed aimlessly. Its antennae disabled. The isopods behind it, five more of them now, ran into their thrashing fellow, which delayed the swarm long enough for us and all the crew to reach the wheelhouse. I think we know what happened to those mission ships now. Eight noted as we secured the door behind us. What are those things? The first mate asked, terrified. Apparently, Captain Dan and several other fishermen had been injured on the other parts of the ship by invading bugs before scrambling to safety. A couple of the crewmen looked like they might not make it. Freaks of nature, I replied. I don't think this wheelhouse will keep him out very long, Seven. Agent 8 warned. I hope the others didn't notice that his gun hand was trembling and mine was too. My eyes darted frantically around the cabin searching for some solution. I'm working on it. The huge isopods chittered with excitement as they surrounded the wheelhouse. Their hundreds of jointed legs scrabbled at the hull, trying to find purchase to force their way inside. Did you government tops know these things were here? The mate demanded angrily. If we did, do you think we would come in a fishing boat instead of the U.S. Navy? Eight snapped back. The hideous face of one of the monsters pressed up against the windshield, its segmented mouth parts snapping. That glass was built for storms. But I didn't think it would last long. The steel hull might not either. Eureka! I shouted. Get everyone up on the seats and wooden benches away from the metal walls! I used a handy fire axe to rip open one of the cabin's panels, revealing the ship's main power line. I got on a wooden chair, improvised some insulation for my hands out of my slicker, and hacked through the big cable. Nobody touch the hull! 
The front window of the ship caved in, and a truck-sized isopod stuck its ugly head inside. They're coming in! He cried, emptying his clip into the invading bug. I snagged the sputtering cable with the axe head and shoved the power line against the nearby bulkhead. The isopod shrieked as sparks flew, and everywhere they touched, the steel hull lit up electric blue. A sound like a thunderclap shook the entire ship, and for a moment everything went white. Then silence fell like a shroud over the dragnet Danny. When all our eyes cleared, the ship looked like it had been through a hurricane, but the bugs were gone. We patched up the electricals, restarted the engine, and limped back toward San Diego at the best speed we could muster. As the crew tended to their injured, Aid and I stood guard at the ship's rail. So what do you think caused those things? Toxic dumping? Radiation? UFOs? Aid asked. Maybe the Terragons will have some theory, I replied, shaking my head. One thing's for sure, though. They're not going to like that the bugs have reached the West Coast. Well, I don't much like it either. Nor do I, I agreed, settling in for what might be a long, stressful night watch. Agent 8 sighed. Well, one good thing, at least Agent 7. What's that? He chuckled. (laughs) At least we didn't have to call an airstrike. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales. Brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions and the Monster Conservancy. Tonight's episode, Bugs on Board, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced, edited, and read by Christopher R. Mim and featured Stephanie Mim as Agent 7, Ruthless Ruth Donlevy, Joe George as Agent 8, Wild Bill, Michael Kaiser as the first mate of the Dragnet Danny, and Elliot Mim as the Doomed Fisherman. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2021 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. Join the conversation at SaveMonsters.com. This is the St. Euphoria Audiocast Network. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present... Atomic Tales! Stories of science, mystery, and excitement. This episode features the latest installment in our fantastic original series, Strange Invaders. Tonight, we continue our look into the history of the Science Bureau and their encounters with the unknown in The Buzz of Doom. Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. What are you up to, Miss Brock? Those papers don't look like the usual Science Bureau secretarial work. Oh, Miss Brockford! I, I mean, Agent 3. I didn't hear you come in. Stealth is one of the reasons the Bureau hired me. It came in handy working overseas during the war. Is that a mission tape you've got in the machine? Yes, Agent 3. I, um... You can call me Rocky. Everyone in the agency does. Okay, and I'm Gigi. My dad tagged me with it. It's quicker than Gloria Gale. So, Gigi, what are you doing? I'm trying to educate myself. 
catch up on all missions. I want to know everything so I could become an agent one day. Oh. I didn't get this job because my dad's a general, you know? I'm sure you didn't. You're in this mission I'm reviewing right now. You, and Agent 1, and Agent 5, too, I think. Ah, that was very early in the invasion. Back then we had no idea what was going on. We were lucky to get out of it alive. Do we know what's going on now, Agent 3? I mean, Rocky? We've got a better idea of what we're up against, at least. Well, Gigi, I'll let you get back to your studies. Good luck. The Bureau needs more smart agents. You bet. Bye. And thanks, Rocky. I sent for Agent 5 before I went to bed last night, Agent 1. Suzanne Rocky Rockford informed me as we walked from our rustic motel rooms in Simmons, Colorado, toward the small restaurant across the parking lot. He'll be here by midday. Do you really think that's necessary, Agent 3? I replied, tamping down a prickle over the breach of protocol. As lead agent, I'd usually have been the one to call in reinforcements. Three shot me a genial smile and paused in mid-amble. Ray, she said, we've got a trio of mysterious deaths and two disappearances in the last month. And yesterday, a bunch of locals told us that they'd seen things they couldn't explain zooming around in the sky. So unless those three corpses are coincidence... Yeah, it doesn't seem like whatever's going on is related to those mutant fireflies I ran into, I mused, even though their breeding ground in Moret is just across the valley from here. Not unless your giant glow bugs have suddenly gone hostile. Three agreed. Either way, I think a sharpshooter might come in handy. Come on, I'll buy you a quick ham and egg and we'll swap theories on the drive to the site of the first death. I nodded and fell into step beside her. When Rocky Rockford is right about something, this Science Bureau agent is smart enough not to argue. After breakfast, the two of us rolled up to the site of the initial death in our agency Studebaker. We'd talked things over, but the case remained mysterious. The victims, if they were victims, had all been older locals who'd lived alone. A widow, a widower, and a hermit hiding out on his isolated family farm. All the corpses had been strangely swollen, and there had been some disfigurement too. The local authorities couldn't dope out the bloating or the mutilations, though they put down the second as post-mortem wildlife predation. Sightings of UFOs, lights and other unknown objects in the sky, accompanied each death. Because the Bureau had solved the Moret case across the valley a month or so earlier, we'd been called in again. I have to admit that when I joined the United States Science Bureau, I wasn't sure what to think. Professor Tarragon's declaration that strange things had gone on during the war and America would need to guard against future parascientific incursions had seemed a bit out there to me. But funding for the agency was strong, and both the prof and his brainy daughter had sterling reputations in the science community. Besides, this former Marine wasn't about to turn down steady government work in the aftermath of World War II. With so many soldiers home from overseas, good-paying jobs were hard to nab. I'm sure Rocky found the same thing after leaving the intelligence services at the war's end. But what both of us probably assumed would be just a series of Tarragon-inspired snipe hunts were now starting to look not so crazy after all. Who would ever have thought giant lightning bugs might be a thing? Prof Tarragon and his daughter with the PhD, apparently. That being the case, who are Suzanne and I to judge? We started our investigation with the first possible victim, David Ryan. 
Ryan was a former rancher turned hermit, and his place lay on a wooded Colorado hillside above a swampy lake surrounded by tall cattails waving the warm late spring breeze. The forest had retaken what once had been Ryan's pasture land, and young lodgepole pines, spruces, and firs filled the air with their sharp, sweet fragrance. Bit of a dump, Three remarked as we approached Ryan's ramshackle A-frame home. More than a bit, I agreed. A quick but thorough search of the place didn't turn up anything more than the police had found, which was to say, nothing pointing to anything other than natural or accidental death. But they never found the guy's head, Rocky asked. No trace of it, I confirmed. Bear? Mountain lion? Something like that, probably, I agreed. Though it's weird for an animal to take just part of a corpse. What about your lightning bugs? They eat pollen or nectar, or so the doc assumes, since we haven't been able to take any specimens. Is that a barn I see through those trees? Three nodded. Looks like. Even more of a mess than the house. Want to check it out? Yeah. We'll give it a quick look and then maybe move on to the other sites. It'd be a shame if we came all this way and these cases turn out to be nothing unusual. We get the same government salary either way, I noted. I guess. If this comes out bust, maybe we could try to spot some of your fireflies before we head back to Washington. She laughed. I always wanted to see a UFO. Sounds like a plan. We hiked through the scrubby young pines toward the dilapidated gray structure. Time and the weather had caved in the building, so that it now looked more like a jumble of pickup sticks than a barn. When we'd come within about 50 yards of the heap, Agent 3 suddenly stopped. What? I asked, stopping too. Don't you hear that? Hear what? That buzzing sound. Ray, look out! Her automatic barked once as I turned, drawing my own gun. A yellow and black wasp the size of a dinner platter came straight from my face. I couldn't bring up my pistol in time to stop the nightmare bug from hitting me. Its stinger looked the size of my little finger. Fortunately, Agent 3's second shot nailed it. The thing flopped to the pine needle-covered ground, bleeding greenish goo as it died. It stank like a garbage heap. Sorry, I missed it the first time. Three apologized. It kind of spooked me. Me too, I replied. Thanks, Suzanne. That's when we noticed that the buzzing sound was growing louder. Fiendish yellow and black insect heads the size of softballs began peeking out of every nook and cranny in the tumble-down barn. Back to the car, I commanded. But the deadly bugs had already swarmed up between us and the Studebaker, cutting off our retreat. Down to the lake, Three urged. Wasps don't like water. I hope you're right, I said as we sprinted for the cattails, shooting the closest giant insects out of the sky as we went. The deaths of their fellows seemed to discourage the monsters, but only for an instant. Soon, an angry cloud of at least two dozen had gathered by the barn. They turned and flew full speed toward us. We dashed into the tall reeds, our boots sloshing into the chilly lake water, and crouched down, firing at the forerunners. Our gunshots echoed across the swampland, momentarily overwhelming the drone of giant insect wings. How many clips do you have? I asked. Just one more. You? Same. What then? Dive in and hold our breaths? Unless you have a better idea. Three smiled grimly. At least we know why those bodies were weirdly bloated, stung to death. It's the missing heads I'm more worried about, I admitted, sweat drenching my clean white shirt. Yeah, I... Ray, duck! Before I could, something heavy hit me on the back of the skull. For a moment, my whole world was gunfire, ear-splitting buzzing, and then everything went dark. Secretary Brock. Gigi. 
Jeepers, did you have to shout? I nearly jumped out of my skin. What are you doing here? Shouldn't you be typing or filing or something? Yes, Dad. I mean, no, Dad, I mean... What? I mean, I'm on a break, General Brock, sir. Well, break time is over, Gloria Gale. How would it look if someone else found you gold-bricking on the Bureau's time? But I wasn't gold-bricking, General. I was studying case files. Young lady, when are you going to give up this absurd notion of becoming a Science Bureau agent and just do your job? But three and seven and a lot of other women are agents. Women, not girls, barely out of school, Gigi. But... You'll have to get back to your daydreaming later. Aren't you supposed to be picking up Dr. Tarragon from the airport? That's not until... Oh, jeez, look at the time. Gotta run, Dad. I mean, General... Wouldn't want to keep the doc waiting. No, you wouldn't. And lock those tapes up before you go. Those are classified. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales. Brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, The Buzz of Doom, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced, edited, and read by Christopher R. Mim, who also played Agent 1, Raymond Ray Tyler, and featured Rachel Grubb as Agent 3, Suzanne Rocky Rockford, Gwen Ruhoff as Gloria Gigi Brock, and Mike Cook as General Edward Brick Brock. Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. Join the conversation at the Monster Conservancy at SaveMonsters.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2021 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. This is the St. Euphoria Audiocast Network. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present... Atomic Tales! Stories of science, mystery, and excitement. This episode features the latest installment in our fantastic original series, Strange Invaders. Tonight, our intrepid agents 3 and 8 investigate a cult of UFO enthusiasts in Prophet from the Stars. Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. I'm so glad you're coming with us, Suzanne. Donna Hayes enthused. She leaned forward and poked her head over the front seat of Agent Aid's car. I think you'll find this get-together super exciting. If we're lucky, we might see some UFOs or even meet an alien visitor from the planet Metis. I've seen amazing things during these under-the-stars conclaves. I shot a sidelong glance at Donna's husband, William Wild Bill Hayes, who was driving us through the Indiana twilight to attend his wife's contactee meeting. Bill gave a little eye roll, signaling that he wasn't really into this true believer snipe hunt either. But here the three of us sat, me and Bill up front with Donna piping in from the back. She had insisted on taking the rear seat because I was a guest, and she didn't want all of us jammed together on the agency Studebaker's front bench. That'd sure be interesting, Donna, I replied. My wartime espionage training kept any skepticism from showing in my voice. 
Donna was a nice gal, but more gifted in looks than brains. Agent 7, Ruth Donlevy, says the same of Donna's husband. They're a matched pair, according to her. Still, Bill is reliable, especially in a fight, and I get along well with both of them, far too well to turn down this nutty invitation. You and Bill are supposed to investigate saucer sightings, aren't you? Donna had asked over dinner at their house. So, tag along. What can it hurt? Yeah, Bill had agreed. What can it hurt? If you get bored, you and Bill can wait in the car. Donna had concluded cheerfully. With that kind of setup, how could I refuse? Besides, the tilt of Bill's head told me he wanted company for this venture. So after dinner, we all piled into the car and... Bill pulled his black four-door champion up a rutted cow path to where somebody, the farm's owner probably, had cleared a patch in the tall prairie grass at the base of a lightly wooded hill. A dozen or so cars of various makes and models already sat around the edges of the clearing. A mowed path led from the parking area to the hilltop. A burnt orange horizon fading to a deep cerulean sky greeted us as we got out of the Studebaker. Evening stars blazed brightly overhead and the clear summer air smelled of newly mown grass. A hint of fertilizer and fresh sprung greenery wafted in from the nearby cornfields. Come on! Donna urged, hurrying uphill. A glance from Bill told me to hang back and take the hike more slowly. You go ahead, he called to his wife. We'll catch up. What's the scoop, Bill? I asked when Donna was out of earshot. Why'd you drag me out here? Because the more I've been away on assignment, the more Donna's fallen in with this crowd. He replied. I think it's a combination of her wanting to be part of my work, you know, investigating UFOs and stuff, plus her not wanting to move to Nevada. You heard the bureau's open to Reno branch, right? Yeah. To tackle the desert ant problem. Well, Donna doesn't really want me to go. I mean, she grew up here. And I think she thinks if she's in tie with the local community, I won't take the transfer. But I go where the agency sends me. And besides, I don't trust these compadres. She's been giving them a little money, and I think they're sniffing around for some more. So, you want me to... Bill stopped trudging uphill and looked me straight in the eye. Suzanne, Donna likes you. She trusts you. And she knows you're a big brain. She won't believe me if I tell her these people are full of wild blueberry muffins. But she might believe you. I'm not a scientist like Agent 7, I reminded him. Yeah, but Donna doesn't like Ruth. He replied. Too smarty pants for her. But you, you're just a regular gal. Besides, you're here, and as Agent 3, you outrank me and nearly everyone in the U.S. Science Bureau. People from this part of the country respect authority. Donna included. I sighed. Yeah, okay, I'll give it a shot. Then I laughed. Who knows? Maybe these kooks really do have a line on alien invaders. Those Greenpoint UFO sightings weren't that far from here, and I did come out to investigate flying saucer reports after all. A light fog rolled over the top of the hill as the two of us reached the rest of the group, all eagerly sitting cross-legged in front of a middle-aged blonde standing at the top of the hill. She wore white robes emblazoned with dark stars, moons, and planets. Soft white illumination from behind her filtered through the fog like celestial moonbeams. The lighting was obviously carefully staged. This show had already begun. Welcome newcomers to our group tonight. The woman intoned solemnly. We also hope to welcome, if the astrological alignments are with us, our benevolent star brothers from the planet Metas. The stars are with us. The conclave folks, including Donna, responded in unison. A few also chanted, Star Brothers! Star Brothers! That's Sister Starlight. 
Bill's wife whispered as we settled in next to her. Star, we call her. She's the one the Matusian ambassador visited first. She takes turns running the meetings with her husband, brother Tom. That's short for tomorrow. Is he here tonight? I asked, scanning the crowd. I don't see him yet, Donna replied. Maybe he'll show up later. Probably waiting downhill with the collection plate, Bill grumbled. I really hope we're worthy tonight, Donna gushed. Indeed, the stars are right. Sister Star declared, raising her arms high. Will you come with us? Will you journey the cosmos with your star brethren? We will! We will! Her little cult chimed. Now is the time, and this is the place! Sister Star shouted. Chant with me! Come in peace, star brothers! We await you! The rest of the crowd got to their feet, so Asian Eight and I did too. We didn't join in the chant, but Donna did. Come in peace, peace, star brothers, brothers. we We await you. you. Come in peace, star brothers, we We await you. Suddenly, a red ball of light streaked through the clear sky overhead and landed behind the fog-bound hill. A flash momentarily turned everything brilliant white. And as my eyes recovered, the shadow of a figure appeared behind Sister Star. Donna pointed and shrieked. They're here. They've come. Sister Star stood stuck still, not even turning to greet the arrival of this amazing extraterrestrial visitor as, all around us, her flock went nuts. The newcomer's shadow loomed large behind its high priestess, towering over her, though the creature itself was short, maybe half her height. It had long arms, stubby legs, and wore a silvery bodysuit. A bulbous silver helmet covered its oversized head. Two people nearby fainted while Donna and the rest kept screaming with delight. Our brother, the High Ambassador from Metas, is in psychic communication with me, Sister Star announced, still not looking at the spaceman behind her. He bids you welcome. Bullfeathers, I barked. I sprang up and rushed towards the Prophet and her alien buddy before anyone could stop me. Agent 8 followed hot on my heels. Wait! Stop! Sister Star cried as I sprinted past. Already, the Methusian ambassador was trying to lope off into the all-too-convenient fog. I clipped him with a strong backhand as I went. He squawked and thudded to the ground. I kept going. Bill, grab the alien! I shouted. Don't let Sister Star leave either. I've got bigger fish to fry. Right. Agent 8 replied. To say that Brother Tom, working the lights, the saucer-like flares, and the fog machine, was startled to see me barreling out of the mist would be an understatement. He tried to brain me with a big metal flashlight as I bore in. I ducked and clouded him with a surface regulation uppercut to the jaw. He went down in a heap. I couldn't help but grin. You should have seen that coming. Tomorrow. So, the alien was just a trained monkey in a silver suit. Agent 8 mused as the police took the space grifters and their pet away. Bill looked proud of the work we'd done tonight, and I couldn't blame him. I recognized the smell of their dry eyes fog immediately when we sat down, I explained. That, plus the prearranged light show, was a dead giveaway that they were up to no good. This kind of hoax may play in Kentucky, but not here in Indiana, Bill declared proudly. Not with you and me around anyway, Rocky. I can't believe that Brother Tom and Sister Star were trying to cheat everyone. Donna moaned as we walked back to the agency's Studebaker. The rest of her contactee friends had long ago drifted away, thoroughly disillusioned. Bill put his arm around his wife. There are a lot of common in this world, babe. I'm just glad we didn't take that train any further. 
Well, you can take me further, Bill Hayes, Donna announced. Liked that new bureau office in Reno? I could never live this down if we stayed here, and I won't even complain if your clothes come home smelling like fish, or bug guts, or anything. The two of them grinned at each other like young lovers. Good job tonight, Agent 8, I told Bill. You too, Agent 3, he replied. If you hadn't tagged along, Donna might have been kidnapped to the stars or God only knows where. And I'd have ended up a monkey's uncle. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales. Brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, Profit from the Stars, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced and edited by Christopher R. Mim and was read by Rachel Grubb, who also played Agent 3, Suzanne Rocky Rockford. It featured Joe George as Agent 8, Wild Bill Hayes, Julie Fay as Donna Hayes, and Cherie Gallinati as Sister Starlight. Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. Join the conversation at the Monster Conservancy at SaveMonsters.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2021 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. This is the Saint Euphoria Audiocast Network. Keeping my fingers and tentacles crossed that by next week, I will have my life in order enough to be able to edit the Spider Baby conversation with Chris Franklin and put that out. So everybody, put some positive vibes out into the world that we're able to make that happen. Follow us over at monsterkidradio.net to keep up to date with everything going on here. Our contact information is over there. Links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter, our Discord, our Reddit. It's all there, including our Patreon, which I feel a little weird talking about since, you know, we're not really giving you the typical show right now. So I'm not going to talk too much about it. But if you want to learn about the Patreon, we have the Patreon campaign and it's been updated with brand new tiers, brand new reward levels and all of that. So you can find that as well. And you know what? Just for fun. I know it sounds a little silly, but a friend of mine did this when she went through a divorce and got moved and set up in her own place. And, you know, I thought it was kind of funny. And I talked to her about it and we decided or or we discussed it. And you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do it, too. You've heard about a wedding registry. You may have even heard about a baby registry. But what about a divorce registry. So yeah, just for fun, I put together a divorce registry over on Amazon. And I'll probably add things to it as things continue as time goes on. And, you know, I know it's a little on the silly side, but there are some things that we could really use around here. Some things to get the studio set up and some things to keep Wednesday happy and some things to kind of help me out. And uh, yeah, I'll make sure there's a link to the divorce registry slash a virtual housewarming <laughs> uh, gift list over there on the website as well. Also, you'll notice I didn't play any special music this time around. It's just the Monster Kid Radio theme. I really am kind of phoning it in this week, aren't I, folks? You know, it is what it is. I've got some more unpacking to do and the day job to get ready for for tomorrow. And 
yeah, just getting back to some sort of regular or irregular Monster Kid life. I'm looking forward to that happening here very soon. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. My name is Eric M. Cook, and I'll talk to everybody next week when things will be a little bit more stable. Ciao.